I really believe that what I'm going to be saying this morning is maybe the most important thing I've ever said from this pulpit. Maybe the most important thing I've ever said. And the reason is, is because if we can ever become convinced of where we are citizens, it will change our behavior completely. If we ever can get it in our brains that we are not citizens of Louisiana, we're not citizens of the United States of America, but we are citizens of a heavenly country, a better country, so much better than what we experience down here, but we're citizens of it. If we can get that in our brain, it will change us thoroughly and completely from stem to stern. And I believe that with all my heart. And last week we talked about the following of the good example. And, and Paul is really, you can tell right here in this, in this passage here in, in chapter 3, he's, he's trying to... Um, he's, he's trying to give us all these practical advice and practical examples. And, and he talked about, you know, following this, the, the good examples. And he talked in 3 and 17 about to join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Look at these godly people. Look at the people around you, me, Timothy, Epaphrodites, and, and act like we are acting. And, and you will become those that you seek to be like. You're going to become, and sometimes our, the people that we would that are our heroes aren't the people that we would say are our heroes. We have people that we emulate that we wouldn't necessarily call them, but in, in even subconsciously in some way we're trying to be like that person. And so we will become the people that we imitate. And Paul is, is obviously a great example. If you're, if you're trying to be like Paul, you're, that's a great place to start. That's a good one. Um, he's a wonderful role, role model, and he had developed in his own life these character qualities that we need to have in our lives. Paul had set for himself the goal of the high prize, which is in Christ Jesus. That calling is what he wanted, the calling, and uh, the, the high calling of, of God in Christ Jesus. He wanted people to know Jesus personally as much as humanly possible. That was his desire. He wanted to know Jesus as much as he could. And he kept his priorities straight by pressing on towards that one goal. So he could, he could do a million things, and he could have a million different you know, irons in the fire, so to speak. But he knew what the goal was. He, knew what the, he kept the priorities straight. He knew what was the most important thing. And because he did, he never got distracted by what was to the left or what was to the right or what was in the past or what was in front. He stayed connected and he stayed focused. Because he kept those priorities, he could adapt to the cultures he was in. Remember, in one place, he would eat meat that was, that was offered to idols. In another place, he wouldn't do it because the people there, it was not something they did, so he didn't do it. But in this place, they did, so he also did because he, he didn't believe that idols had power over him. So he wasn't violating anything that he believed in, in Scripture. And so he could, he could do that, and, and he could stay godly but yet not be assimilated. That's something we talked about at the end of last week, and it's so important for us for us to live in the culture that we're in. We, we, we all have jobs and family and work and things that we have to do outside of this building, but we have to be godly without being assimilated in the, in the culture that we're in. We can inhabit the culture without the culture changing us. Paul learned what was important and what was not important, what was necessary and what was personal preferences. And when it came to the truth of the Word of God, Paul was bold. He was willing to confront even Peter at one point because he, he, was, he, he was so bold when it came to the Word of God. Paul was also not perfect. That's a great thing for us to all remember when we try to look at our own lives. Paul was not perfect. 
but he was quick to acknowledge and he took responsibility when he was wrong. We read a scripture on that last week, a great example of this. And all of these things that I'm telling you and many more, they're qualities in Paul's life that are good examples for us to follow. But Paul closed with, in that, in that passage of scripture, just as there are good examples, there are bad examples. He warned us in verses 18 and 19, and it is tragic that so many professing Christians just simply do not heed that advice and that warning, and instead will hold people in high esteem that aren't worthy of it. Sports figures, our kids, we gotta be so careful who we let become heroes in our kids' eyes. Sports figures and musicians and, and celebrities, that's not a hero. They're just not heroes. They're, their lives are not godly. There's nothing about their lives that we really should want to emulate. And, and, and unfortunately, in the culture that we live in, that, that's the message where it's, we're bombarded with this, you know, look up to these guys, look up to these, these uh, singers and these sports figures. And, and just because they've gained wealth and fame, we're told that they're great. And, and, and that's not the case. Because regardless of how well they can sing, how well they can act, how well they can play a sport, those whose character are marked by immorality or moral depravity do not deserve honor by Christians. That's a harsh statement, but they don't deserve honor from us. We know what the truth is. We know the scriptures. We know what God has elevated and what God says is important. And if someone's life isn't demonstrating those things, I don't need to be giving that person honor. I love them but I don't need to be honoring them. That honor is, should be reserved for those heroes of the faith that we talked about last week. Many of you are in this room, I would include in that category. Those who are outwardly sinful are easy to spot and therefore it is easier for us to protect ourselves from their influence. But more difficult to, to, to spot is those people who are outwardly Christian, maybe even pious in some ways, but inwardly they're greedy, they're sensual, they're lustful. Those, those people exist around us and, and they would secretly in, in introduce heresies and they would secretly uh, introduce things that are, that are, that are worldly into, into a Christian's life. Paul calls them enemies of the cross in verse 18. They want to add or take away from the gospel in some way. And he, he's, he's so conscientious about mentioning all these things because he knows that no works or works of righteousness that we can do will save us. They're filthy rags before God. At the time that he was speaking, there were Greek philosophers who were trying to take away the concept of sin. And, and, and they, were, they were basically saying that, um, that you know, you, you, there was like this dichotomy. And, and, and once you accepted, you know, Christ in your life, that sin was done away with. And then you, you, you didn't have to do anything other than just say you, you believed in Jesus Christ and you could do anything you wanted. It's crazy, but that doctrine's back again. That same doctrine is back again. And, and, and Paul dealt with it. There are others who would exchange the Jesus Christ of the Bible for one of their own making. They'll turn him into a good teacher, a philosopher, or an example. But an ex a philosopher, an example, or a teacher can't save you. It's, it's the Savior that saves you. It's the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made and Jesus Christ alone that saves us. The difference between good and bad role models will ultimately be demonstrated by their final destination, whether it be heaven or whether it be hell. But in the here and now, we can look for fruits. We can see the things that tell if someone's life is, is leaning towards God or if it's leaning the other way. What do they boast in? Is it honorable or is it shameful what they're boasting in? What do they pursue in seeking satisfaction? Is it godliness or is it their own appetites? What do they think about? Is it heavenly or is it worldly? We can apply the same logic to our own lives. What am I thinking about? What am I boasting in and what am I pursuing? And as we come to our text this morning in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 
Paul gives one more contrast as he explains the expectations that a Christian has that motivate us to godliness. One more contrast, and I want to read 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The importance of that first phrase cannot be stressed enough. It is another contrast between good and bad. It's true that it is a contrast between good and bad. Heaven, obviously, if we're citizens of heaven or citizens of somewhere else. But more importantly, it is the reason and the motivation for a Christian to live a godly life. In this way, it's a summary of Paul's argument throughout this chapter. But to understand that, we need to dig into this phrase a little deeper citizenship in the KJV is translated as conversation, but we no longer use the word in that way. It's the context has now changed like they did in the 1600s. But in the Greek world of the first century when Paul was writing, it meant for foreign colonies outside the mother country with certain specified rights. It's kind of a lengthy, wordy definition, but but I'm going to kind of explain it because it does make perfect sense for the people he was writing to in Philippi. Remember, we talked about this, I think maybe the first or the second lesson that we even were in Philippians. We talked about how uh, Philippi was a direct colony of Rome. Remember, there'd been a battle fought there and the people of Philippi had helped the Roman Empire. And so as a reward for their help, they were actually made citizens of Rome. Now, Paul, remember what, when Paul was, was accused of things in Jerusalem, he was able to appeal to Caesar because he was a citizen of the Roman Empire. Do y'all remember all that? Okay, the, the Philippians were higher than that. They weren't just citizens of the empire. They were citizens of Rome, which is higher. That's even greater. That's even, even, and they were really proud of it. The, Phil, the, the Philippians were very proud of it. I think, and, and the evidence points towards this, Paul was purposefully using this word to convey to the believers in Philippi this spiritual truth based on this fact of their citizenship. The Christian, all of us, we are radically changed at salvation when we believe what Jesus Christ has revealed about himself. The most radical change is going from being dead in our sins and our trespasses to being alive in Jesus Christ. That's the biggest change that happens when we are saved. We're, we were dead in sins, now we're alive in Christ. God's grace is extended to us, and we are justified before him, and we receive forgiveness of all of our sins. We are adopted into his family. We become children of God. This is pretty awesome stuff. I mean, this is, this is really, really good. That's the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be a part of the family of God. Included with this is that we become citizens of a place that we have never been. Do you realize that? You got the day, whatever, whatever day you, you receive the Holy Ghost, you walk down the aisle, whatever day it was you got baptized, whatever day you call the day that you were saved, you received a new, uh, new passport. You, got, you, didn't even, you didn't even get to carry it out, but you got a new passport. Whatever day it was that you trace back, that's the day I was saved, you got a new passport that day. Included in that is something that we get the rights, we get the privileges, we get all the things included in that citizenship. 
And because it is the dwelling place of our Father, we belong there too. Heaven becomes your true home. This is not your home anymore. Heaven is your home. It's important to note that the word that is translated as is in this sentence is not the normal verb that is used for the word is in the rest of the Greek New Testament. The word in our verse today means to begin, to be ready, to be at hand, being or belonging to. It also means to possess. So the usage of this word here makes an emphasis that this is something that has, uh, one theologian put it, being already in existence or manifesting itself already. Heaven is not something that is just off in the future somewhere, but our citizenship is even now in heaven. Your citizenship is even now in heaven. Though we're not there yet, we live as though it is our current place of residence. We're subject to its laws. Does that make sense? We're citizens of heaven. We're not citizens of Louisiana. We're not citizens of the United States. We're subject to different, different rules. We also have different privileges because we're citizens of heaven. You are not a citizen of down here. You're a stranger and a pilgrim here. This is not your home. That's your home. And we're supposed to act like that's our home. We live as though it is our current reality. We live as though it's a fact. This was a concept that would have been easily understood by the Philippians. Und undoubtedly, there would have been those that were citizens of Philippi and, and, but, and, and therefore citizens of Rome, but they had never traveled to Rome. It's kind of a long way. Um, Philipp Philippi is up kind of close, actually close to Turkey on that side of the Greek peninsula. So it would be normal that many people in Philippi had never been to the city of Rome, but they were Roman citizens. And even though they had never been there and they were not currently there, they would have understood the importance and the, the power involved in being a citizen of Rome. It's a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. They weren't just, like I said, a citizen of the empire. They were a city, they were a citizen of the capital city itself. And though we have never been to heaven, I, I have not, have any of you, anybody been? I, I've not been to heaven yet, and I'm not currently there at this moment. Y'all can see me, I see you, we're not there currently. The present reality is that I am still a citizen of heaven. And you are a citizen of heaven. That is your true home. That's home for you. This has always been true for those who are faithful in following God. In Hebrews 11, it describes some of those great godly men and women of the past. And in verse 13, it makes a comment about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. And it says, all of these died in the faith without receiving the promises. But having seen those promises, they saw the promises, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, we're, we are strangers and exiles here on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They were seeking something else. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better 
country. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's what we desire. That's what we seek. As Christians, that's what we want. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the true nature of a Christian life. Right there is the nature of a Christian life. We desire a better country. Even in our sin, we know that this one is not sufficient. This place that we're in doesn't feel right. It's not right, and it doesn't feel like the place where we belong. And though, we were, and, and though we're born here, uh, most of us in this room probably were born in the central Louisiana area. After we become disciples of Jesus Christ, we begin to uh, uh, gain a greater awareness that this world is not our real home. We can sense that we are strangers and pilgrims here because we don't fit in with the world around us. Maybe you have had the same experience I have had with this. The longer I walk with Jesus and the closer I draw to him, the less the things of this world offer attraction to me. The things of this world begin to become more foreign. I loved at one point in my life to flirt with all the things of the world. I wanted to feel good in the world. But when I truly had a, a, a relationship awakening experience with Jesus Christ, all of a sudden that changed. I'm now a citizen of a different place. The things of this world have become more foreign to me and they just continue to diminish. They continue to diminish as I grow in knowing Jesus Christ and I experience him living and operating in my life. There are things that I enjoyed at one time, but now I find some of those things to be offensive. I can't believe I used to do them. I can't believe that was important to me. Some of them weren't even sinful. Some of them were just things that I had prioritized way high, and, and they, but they were weights. And I realized that's not worth my time. Some of them were offensive, but, but some of them were just waste of time. And even those that I still do, I find I enjoy less than I did before. There is much more to life than these worldly things. I long for a heavenly country and a city whose builder and maker is God. And that longing, hopefully we're all feeling that longing or at least it's starting to, to awaken in our hearts this morning a little bit of that longing. That longing causes me to change my behavior and my actions. Who can be excited about the, the worldly things? Who can desire the worldly things when you're a citizen of heaven? How can, I, how can the things of this world excite me when I'm a citizen of somewhere else? Having our citizenship in heaven causes us to be the opposite of those that Paul warns about in verse 19, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. We're the opposite of that. All the stuff that people on this earth can set their hearts on is purely temporal. It's just stuff. Not only is it just stuff, it's just down here stuff. You can't take it with you anywhere. A mind that is set on heavenly things looks for all that is related to heaven. If we focus on him, we're looking for what relates to heaven. And that includes the glory of our returning Lord and all that that brings with it. I long for that day. We seek and we find external, I'm sorry, eternal satisfaction in our God instead of sinful pleasure for a season. 
the citizens of heaven have a proper understanding of what presently is and a proper expectation of what is to come. We know what is now and what's coming. We have a proper understanding of both. In these verses 20 and 21, Paul describes two of the wonderful promises that we can expect to be fulfilled as citizens of heaven. Those are things that we can, the nature of our longing and and the means by which it will all be accomplished for us to to then gain our, our entry into heaven. Paul first explains the nature of our expectation to to receive those full benefits of of citizenship. See, down here, we're we're not walking on the streets of gold, but we have the passport. We can get in. But one of these days, we're going to be walking on the streets of gold. That's going to be a day. Won't Won't that be a day? He says that we eagerly await. He says that we, and and another translation says, we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come there. The verb that is used here means to await or expect eagerly. It occurs eight times in the New Testament. It's used six times in the epistles that Paul wrote to the churches. It's used once in Hebrews and once in 1 Peter. In all but the 1 Peter usage, it describes the longing for Jesus' return and the events and the changes that will occur when he does return. It's used three times in Romans 8, 18 through 25. It refers to creation and believers eagerly awaiting for the glory that is to be revealed to us. Creation anxiously longs for the revealing of the sons of God when it will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God is what verse 19 through 12 of chapter 8 of Romans says. Believers with perseverance wait eagerly for our hope Verse 25 is what says that. Our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body, verse 23, tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 7, Paul uses the term in describing one of the character qualities of the Corinthians who were awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. In Galatians 5 and 5, Paul uses it to describe those who through the Spirit by faith are awaiting for the hope of righteousness. Hebrews 9 and 28 also describes those who eagerly await Jesus' return. And the sense here is that our assurance that Jesus will fulfill his promises causes us to look forward to his return. That's an eager waiting. Eager waiting, but it's also a patient waiting For we don't know the timing of his return, yet it is something that we are absolutely, positively, no doubt in our mind, convinced will happen. He's going to return. Jesus will return. We just sang about heaven's jubilee, and we're going to a real heaven's jubilee one day. It might not be this week. It may be a hundred years from now. It may be a thousand years from now. Do you know the early church thought they would see it? The early church thought they were going to see Jesus' return. We know 2,000 years has passed, but they eagerly awaited his return, and I will do the same thing. I will eagerly await it no matter when it's coming. I am convinced he will return, and I am eager to see his return. This is a big reason why Paul desired to reach forward to what lies ahead and forget about what's behind. Because all the things he longed for most in life were in front of him. All the things he longed for, the return of Jesus, was in front of him. And that's good advice for all of us in this room today. You know how children are. 
when, when they're 10, 11, 12, they just can't wait to be 18. When they're 18, they can't wait to be 25. When they're 25, well, you know, as soon as I get, um, get this job, then I'll be financially secure, so we want to get a little older. Now, all of that slows down around 60. <laughs> around, yeah, <laughs> maybe at 49, because <laughs> that's where I am. But all of that slows down all of a sudden, and hold on a second. No rush. Just the, the days don't need to keep clicking by quite so fast. Because we warn our kids about rushing time. We, we tell them because we've learned the lesson. Hey, slow down. Enjoy what you're doing. But as we get older and as our bodies start to do things they're not supposed to, and our minds start wearing out. For some of us, that's happening quicker than others. Sometimes we come to the harsh realization that many of our dreams and our plans will not be accomplished. Anybody ever gotten there? You reach a certain age, you're like, well, I'm not going to accomplish that one. <laughs> that just ain't going to happen. And it's easy for us to long. Everybody in this room, most people in this room, there's a few younger people, there's a few that are here that are younger, but most of us in this room have reached that age where we kind of wouldn't mind being young again if we could take the knowledge, right? I'm not going back to 18 if I have to learn those lessons again, but if I could take the knowledge, I'll go back to 18. But we long for those times when we were young and we were free and our dreams were in front of us. But I want to tell you as a Christian, the greatest thing you have is still in front of you. It is to see your Savior. That is in front of you. As a Christian, the most exciting time for us is in front of us. Don't look back. Every day is just a day closer to me eventually getting to see my Savior. It's a day getting closer to see Jesus. Paul longed for the return of Jesus Christ. He tells us that in verse 20. He said Jesus' return is the pivotal event of the future. The cross is the pivotal event of the past, and the return of Jesus is the pivotal event of the future. But Paul stresses that it is the person of Jesus Christ that he wants to see. The rapture he could care less about. He wants to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. The rapture is a wonderful side effect of me getting to see Jesus. The event and its consequences are secondary to me seeing Jesus. I'm not living this Christian life to be raptured. I'm living it because I'll get to see my Savior. That rapture is just a, you know, that's one of those extra things we get. Yeah, that's that when you sign a contract with your employer and they're, oh, well, we'll give you two weeks paid vacation. That's what the rapture is. That's extra. Perhaps paraphrasing can bring out the sense of this verse. I'm going to paraphrase this verse this way. The Christian is even now a citizen of heaven. And heaven is where our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at. And we eagerly await his return. What a pretty way to put that. That surmises everything. The promise of Jesus' return is spoken of throughout the New Testament. There are two aspects to Jesus' return. One of which is the positive consequence to those who believe, and that is that we'll be with Jesus. We'll, there's a... Because the, 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 the downside of that is, is there's a negative consequence for those who do not believe in Jesus. Because the positive return for us is heaven, but the, the people who do not believe, there is a negative consequence. 
But for our purposes today, I want to focus on that positive aspect because that's what Paul is telling the people of Philippi is an encouragement to get them to live holy lives. He's trying to encourage everything in here. He's trying to encourage us to be good Christians. And so this is one of the things that a good Christian can learn. There's a lot of positive reasons that our minds are to be on the things above instead of the things on this earth. Colossians 3 and 2 tells us that. Certainly the foundation of this belief is that our Savior's return is Jesus' promise that he's coming back. And it's a blessing to us and we can look forward to it. Probably the best known and clearest passage on this is John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus' words. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you will be also. Jesus also clarified in verse 6 that he was the only way to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Acts 1, 10 through 11 records the comfort given to the disciples as they watched Jesus being ascended into heaven after the resurrection. It says that while they were still gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you have watched him go. He's coming back. He's coming back. Paul speaks of the comforting aspect of Jesus' return for the saints, not only here for the Philippians, but in many of his other epistles. In Colossians 3 and 4, uh, Paul tells the believers that when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. They were to consider the members of their earthly body as dead to sin and set aside their sinful practices to walk in holiness for that promise. I've got to set aside, I can't live like I'm in the world because I'm a citizen of heaven. In 1 Timothy 6 and 14, Paul uses Jesus' promised return to encourage Timothy to live in holiness. He says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul speaks about some of the things the grace of God brings to us, including salvation for sure, and including instruction in righteousness and causing us also to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. In First and Second Thessalonians, Paul speaks of another aspect of Jesus' return that's a comfort to all of us. It would remove us from God's wrath, which is to come. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and 9, Paul speaks to the Thessalonian believers and how they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, Paul brings out both the comforting aspect to believers and the warning to unbelievers. He says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to live and to give grief, I'm sorry, relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The Thessalonians had become fearful. This is what Paul was responding to. 
the Thessalonians had become fearful that those, remember, they thought they were going to see the second coming. But as a little time went on, you know, old brother so-and-so passed away, sister so-and-so passed away, brother Bob over here was run over by a, a, a cart, you know, the, the donkey stomped him and he died too. Is he going to see Jesus? Because they all thought they were going to see Jesus come in the clouds. Well, if you're dead, can you see Jesus come in the clouds? We take it for granted, right? That's 2,000 years. Nobody's still alive that was, that was thinking that was going to happen. But the Thessalonians were worried about this. They had become, become frightful. And Paul comforted them in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's comforting all brother Bob who got run over. He's going to rise first. So that's a comfort to you. That's, that's, you will know this is going to happen. Then we which are alive and remain, and we may be in that group, we may not. But if we are, we will be called up to meet the Lord in the air, thus ever to be with the Lord. Those who have died do not miss out on any of the blessings. In fact, they receive them first, which brings us back to Philippians 3 and 21. There will also be a transformation of your body. Hallelujah. Cold weather, I feel a little arthritis. I'm 49 and I'm feeling arthritis. So, but our bodies will be transformed. One of the wonderful consequences of Jesus' return is that Paul says that Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We exist in a humble state. He exists in glory. This is a wonderful change that will happen to every Christian. This physical body, which is so limited and fails us so often, will be changed into a different kind of body, which will not have those limitations, and it will not fail us. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58, that this body will be imperishable and immortal, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You'll be transformed from flesh and blood into something heavenly. This change to our physical bodies will occur in the twinkling of an eye, which is the time it takes for light to go through the cornea of your eye and reflect back to the front of the lens, which is instantaneous. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, we don't know all the properties of this body. I, I, I imagine something's going to have to change because it, he comes down from the clouds, and if we're going up, we might, we're probably going to need some new skin. I just, I'm just imagining the stuff that we're going to need. So I don't know exactly all the changes, but I do know that when he comes, we will be like him. We shall be like Jesus. I tell you something, I, I, see, I see the Riddicks back there. Sister Evelyn would not come back right now if she could. She would not come back right now if she could. Kyle would not come back right now if he could. They would not return. They have been transformed into something that is amazing. They have become citizens of the place they always felt like they were citizens of, but couldn't go there, but now they're there. Now, as wonderful as it is to think about exchanging the body of our humble estate with all of its limitations and its failings for one that's in conformity to, the, to his, his glory, 
especially when you, when you start to get a little older and you start to feel the physical pains or the handicap. That's not even the best part of all of this. The best part is that this body of sin, this sinful man nature that we have, this Adam nature that we have will be done away with and our sanctification will be complete. Oh, there's a, there, I talk a lot about justification. That's when we're saved. That's when, when sin is no longer put to our name. But then there's that process that lasts our whole life of sanctification where we're just we're continually being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We become more and more like him every single day. But there's one last thing that happens, and it will happen when he comes back. We will be glorified. So there will be a glorification that takes place, and we will be like him. The work of being conformed into his image will be done, and we will be like him. How's it going to be accomplished? Glad you asked. It is not anything that you can do for yourself. It is beyond all human ability. It will be done by the power of Jesus Christ. It will be done in the twinkling of an eye. And that same power that he has, it will be extended to you and it will change you. Recall from back in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, that this same power will cause every knee to bow, every knee to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There is no power greater than this because no one can take us from God's hand. No power in the universe can separate us from the love of God. That's the power that will transform you. It will change you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 28, and again in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he will put all things in subjugation under his feet. That's the power that will raise you. There is no question or doubt in my mind that Jesus Christ will accomplish all that Paul has said here. Everything that Paul has spoken about, Jesus will accomplish. He will come again, and when he does, he will transform your body into the image of his glory. When we were saved, there were many radical changes that took place for all of us. The day you were saved, something happened in your life and the first thing that happened was you, that your sins were washed away and the second thing that happened is you became a citizen of heaven. It is this change in citizenship and the longing to experience the fullness of the benefits of that change that causes me to change my attitudes and my behavior. Now that I've become an American, I wanna, if, if I've immigrated from somewhere else and I come to America, I want to learn a little English. You know, maybe start eating cheeseburgers. Do things Americans do. Take my kids to Disney World. We're the same way when it comes to heaven. Once we become citizens of heaven, we want to start acting like people in heaven. I am not saved to stay the same. None of us in this room were saved to be exactly like we were the day before we were saved. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you who as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, you may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, they will then glorify God in the day of visitation. 
this is not an issue of having a moral code of conduct. Moral, morality codes focus on the pros and cons of some particular action. I do this or I don't do this because these are the consequences. Moral codes of necessity end up generating lists of do's and don'ts. They guide the ethical person, even the non-Christian, as well as the legalist Christian, but they are inevitably self-centered. I am kind because I want people to be kind to me. That's a moral code. That's, that's a moral code. I don't get drunk and go to bars or, or, or have uh, immoral relationships because that would be bad for my body. It'll wear out my liver. I might catch something. That's the reason I don't do those things. I don't go to bars because I'm a Pentecostal. If the only reason you don't go to bars is because you're a Pentecostal, you might as well just start going to bars. Because it's a self-centered list of rules and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. The issue is having a change of heart. The heart becomes changed and I begin to pursue holiness. Holiness focuses on who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven and I'm being conformed every day into the image of Jesus Christ. The outlook becomes Christ-centered. The list of do's and don'ts becomes super simple. I don't go to bars because there's nothing in a place like that that glorifies God. I exist to bring glory to Him. So I'm not going to do things that don't bring Him glory. Therefore, I will do those things that do bring Him glory and refrain from the rest. What would Jesus do? That's the old, you know, WWJD. What would Jesus do? What does Jesus want me to do? I love because He loved. I don't get drunk or have immoral relationships because that would bring shame on my Savior. I will dress modestly because I want people to see the Jesus in me, not me. Where is your citizenship? If it is not in heaven, it can be as soon as today. And if you say it is in heaven, and I imagine most everybody in this room would say, yeah, I'm a citizen of heaven. I want you to ask you a real good question. Are you living in the reality of what that means? Or are you living as though you're a citizen down here? Which place feels strange to you? And which place feels like home? This, this has convicted me this week. It's really, I've been working on this one for a long time and it has convicted which place feels strange and which place feels like home. If you go to London, possibly the most American city outside of America, they all speak English, even though they have an accent. It's as close as you can get to an American city outside of America. You will be constantly reminded that you're not at home. And it is the most American place outside of America, but you will still be constantly reminded that you are not home. I went to Europe a lot in my 20s, a dozen or so times in my teens, in my 20s. I loved it there, the food, the pastries, the castles and the cathedrals, all that. But it's different. In Denmark, the word for speed is fart. So speed limit signs say fart control. It isn't what you would think it means. It's something else entirely. But by the end of every trip I took over there, I was ready to be back in the U.S. You sense all the differences when you're there. The signs don't look right. The language is right. The streets, they have this ziggity-zaggity line in the middle of lanes. I don't know what that means. 
But I knew that when, I, when that plane landed in Atlanta or Houston or New York, wherever I was coming back to, even going through immigration and customs, which is weird, and, and you're, I'm always worried, did I bring a shrubbery back that I didn't know about? Did I bring back an animal that I didn't know about and I have to get in trouble? But they're on my side because I'm an American. Those customs guys work for me. Worst case scenario, I can call my congressman and get some help. But I couldn't do that when I was in Germany. I couldn't do that in London. I couldn't do that in Denmark. But I felt at home when I walked onto U.S. soil. I look back now, and I'm not even sure I was a Christian back then because I was way too comfortable in this world. In some ways, I don't even know if I was a true Christian until about seven and a half years ago. Because now I find myself walking around Alexandria and Pineville, and I start feeling that same feeling I felt in Europe all those years ago. I see sweet, smiling people, and I love them to death. I love going to Spirits and getting a Spirits burger. I like some things in Alexandria. My house is, is in Pineville, and I love my house. I'm happy there. I love Louisiana. I love America. I, I'm, I'm not against our country or anything, but it's not my home. It is not my home. I just don't feel at home in this world anymore.